Today, we're going to examine a puzzle. And the first piece of that puzzle is a statement that you and I have all read many times. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ spoke those words to his disciples while standing in a unique location near the foot of Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights of what is today northern Israel. At the time, the place was known as Caesarea Philippi, though it has had several names down through the centuries. In Old Testament times, it was called Baal God or Baal Hermon and was apparently a place for the worship of the pagan deity Get, who was the god of fortune or of troops. Today, it is generally known as Banyas, which is an Arabic mispronunciation of the older name Panyas, which we'll talk about as we go further. Roman Catholicism has used this particular passage in the book of Matthew to claim that Jesus, uh, that Jesus was proclaiming Peter to be the first pope and conferring upon him divine authority. That claim is relatively easy to disprove on a variety of grounds, but through the centuries, millions of people have simply accepted it as being true without any further investigation. All of us have read and heard this passage, and we have drawn from it the conclusion that Jesus was promising his followers, that no matter what the future might bring, no matter how small the little flock called the Church of God might be at various points through the ages, there will always be some representatives of that church alive on the earth. There would never be a time when the Church of God ceased to exist. Is that the correct way to understand this passage? Is that really what he was saying? Yes, it is. It's exactly what he was saying. And as we look forward today, we'll be able to see a little bit more, I hope, about why. But I also ask the question, is that all he was saying? Is there more to this passage than simply the promise of the continuing existence of the church that he was building? Is there something in this passage that should affect the way you and I live our lives 2,000 years after the statement was made and recorded for us? I would suggest to you that Jesus' promise concerning the continuance of his church is one very, very important piece of a larger picture. The piece is accurate like understanding where one piece of a jigsaw puzzle may fit in and begin to complete the picture. My wife and I first visited this site, Caesarea Philippi, in 2009. And I have to say, I've been trying to understand this passage more fully ever since. It is a unique place, unlike anywhere else in ancient Judea and Galilee. It just seemed to me there must be something more to Jesus' statement than that. If he was simply telling them 
that the church would not die, would not be conquered by death, why would he lead them on a 25-mile hike from the Sea of Galilee up to this unique place? Could he have just stood in a cemetery and told them the same lesson? Wouldn't it have been as effective? Why did he use pagan terminology, the gates of Hades, to make his point to his disciples? So today, what I'd like to do is to examine a few more pieces of the puzzle to see if we can fit them into the picture and perhaps gain a little bit clearer understanding of the message that he was giving to his disciples and to us. I don't claim to have the entire picture figured out. I haven't figured the puzzle yet. Still working on that. But I am finding that the picture that is emerging is both encouraging and sobering for those of us who are called to this age of the church. To do that, we need to pick up and examine several pieces, much like you might as you're filling in or working a jigsaw puzzle. Pick it up, look at it, turn it around. How does this fit? We need to look at several of those in order to see how they fit together. So we're going to need to get a deeper understanding of several matters. First of all, What is Hades? What does the Bible mean by that term, Hades? Is it the same thing the pagans meant by the term? And once we figured that out, what are the gates of Hades? And why go all the way to Caesarea Philippi to make this point? We might also ask, he talked about building his church on a rock. What is the rock? Roman Catholicism says it was Peter. We don't agree with that, but what was it? What is it? And finally, what do the gates of Hades have to do with me? Now, we often say when we talk about the word Hades that it means the grave. Well, kind of, maybe, depending on what you mean when you use the word grave. If what you mean by a grave is a hole in the ground with a body in it, then no, that's not what Hades is. That's not what the Bible is talking about. The New Testament uses the word Hades in 11 verses. The Hebrew word that's basically the equivalent is Sheol, and it occurs in the Old Testament in that form 18 times. However, Sheol is not often left in its original form. It is actually used 66 times in the Old Testament, and it is variously translated as hell, pit, grave, and so on. The Greek word Hades basically comes from a root word that means the unseen place. Interesting. One of the most accepted definitions of those two words, Hades and Sheol, is that they describe the place where the dead go when this life is over. And that's a legitimate description and definition. But there, the confusion begins to grow. The understanding of that word becomes dependent upon how you understand the condition of the dead. Are they conscious, able to communicate with one another, able to know what's going on, or are they unconscious and unaware of anything going on in our world? 
Now, we could certainly do a long study on that by itself and on the words themselves, but for the sake of time, let's assume that you have a basic understanding of what the Scripture teaches in this way. As the first few chapters of Genesis tells us, God informed man from the beginning about life and death. In Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam, and also Eve obviously understood this as well, that if they disobeyed God and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. Now, Adam and Eve had never seen death. They'd never seen anyone die. But I get the impression from the book of Genesis that they quickly figured out this is not a desirable outcome. This is not where we want to go. We don't know how long it was before the servant appeared on the scene, but I think most of us have assumed that it took place fairly quickly after that chapter 2 in Genesis. The story the serpent told them was in direct contradiction to what God had said. So the first man and woman were faced with a decision. There's no such thing as a neutral position on this. You must make a choice one way or the other, similar to what Mr. Greider was talking about with the people at the border of the land. There's no neutral spot. You can't just sit here. You either go forward or you go back. With Adam and Eve, they had to make a decision. They either had to believe what God told them, that that was true, and if they disobeyed him, they would die, or they had to believe what the serpent told them, that they could do whatever looked good to them, and they really wouldn't die. Now, the scripture story is clear. We've all been there. We understand what it says. They chose to believe the lie. And Jesus Christ later in the New Testament said that by that lie, Satan became the murderer of mankind. And even with that, even though God told them clearly that the way they were choosing was wrong, that they would be building their lives upon a lie, they still refused to believe God. Now that kind of thinking permeates society ever since then and to our own day today. Studies have shown that when people feel kind of confused and can't figure out exactly what they should do, they generally arbitrarily choose one thing or another and then completely refuse to accept any idea that disagrees with it. We've seen that in our modern world today. It's certainly been a part of religion for centuries, but we've seen it too. You come across somebody who believes the earth is flat, it really doesn't matter what you say to them, they're going to keep believing it anyway. We've seen it in our world when it came to the COVID pandemic, presidential elections, and it continues day after day today. When Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie that man does not surely die, that leads to a series of decisions and understandings based upon that. There is a natural outgrowth from their decision. In one way or another, though beliefs may vary, Virtually every religion on earth is built upon believing the lie that humans do not actually die when this physical life reaches its end. The first human death recorded in Scripture is the murder 
of Abel by his brother. Now, there may have been other deaths before that. We simply don't know. This is just the first one that's recorded. But when that first human died, whether it was Abel or someone else, they're left with a problem. Obviously, the person's dead. They're not moving. They're not breathing. They're not talking. They're not doing anything. They're just lying there. So they're not alive. But if we've already accepted the belief that you don't surely die, then you've got to figure out some way in which this individual is not really dead. So how do you do that? Well, if they're clearly not alive physically, but you believe they're still alive, then they must be alive in some other form. And if you believe they're really never going to die, they're actually immortal, then they're in some kind of a form outside of the, of the physical that is going to live forever. And thus we find the birth of the idea of the immortal soul. Now, as a side point, please keep in mind that virtually every religion on earth believes that humans continue to exist in some form after this physical life is over. Well, if you come to believe that, in fact, you are still alive, people are still alive as kind of an immortal form, soul, whatever you want to call it, before long you have another question. Where are they? What kind of a life are they living? Where, where, where are they? What, what's going on? Um, are they in some different form? Um, what is it going to be like for them? Well, you pretty much come to the conclusion that, okay, there must be some kind of existence for all of them after this life is over. And that came to be called Hades. Now, we'll look at Hades a little bit more as we go further. But this also leads to another conclusion. I mean, after all, when you look around you and you see people living the ways that they do, there are some people who live really very kind lives, who really try to do the right thing, who try to treat other people properly. And there are other people who don't seem to care about anybody but themselves. There are people who are, we might call good people, people we might call bad people. So it just doesn't seem fair that after this life is over, that everybody ends up in the same condition. So what is this afterlife really like? Well, as time went by, people very soon began to say, well, there must be more than one place for these people who continue to live on in this other form. And there must be a place where people who lived a good life can receive continued blessing and good things. And those people who were really nasty people, they ought to suffer. So we come up with the idea of two places, heaven or hell. A place where everything is wonderful forever, and a place where everything's really nasty forever. Now, if you've been studying anything, and I, I don't imagine most of you spend a lot of time reading uh, theology today, but um, if you see what's going on today, you'll find that the traditional idea 
that people who are bad are going to suffer horribly in this ever-burning hell forever, that's really not very popular today. So instead, hell is being redefined as you spend eternity separated from God. Okay, so we've got two places. Well, that gets us down the road a little ways, anyway. But then this leads to one more very important belief. The determination of where you're going to spend this forever, good place, bad place, takes place in this life. I mean, nobody gets the idea you're going to live physically more than once, so therefore, if you don't want your loved ones to suffer forever in the afterlife, you better convince them to live the right way in this life because this is the only chance they have, or as it's sometimes been called, the only day of salvation. So you've got to convince them to do things the right way today, however you define right. Well, we could go on for several more steps, but this illustrates a principle that when you accept one lie, it inevitably leads to accepting more lies. You cannot end up with truth when your life is built on a foundation of lies. So let's go back to the garden and let's consider the other pathway. Where does that lead? If you start down that road where God says you shall surely die, what does that tell you? Man was created as a physical being. And that which is physical cannot live forever. So that tells us it was God's intention from the beginning to ultimately change physical humans into spirit-composed members of his family. But before that can happen, humans would need a period of time to learn and to show that they would consistently choose to believe God and do what he instructed. Therefore, God had to give to humans the ability to make moral choices, an ability that he never gave to animals because animals didn't need to make moral choices. It wasn't something that was a part of their plan. So God created physical life, first for the plants, then for the animals, but then where man is concerned, he did something unique. Whereas animals have life, and physical brain, man was created with a mind, the ability to make moral judgments, decisions, decide what we would do in different situations. Now, again, a side point, but I want to keep this in mind. Sometimes we get the idea that Satan's lie that says we are evolved from animals, that we are in fact the highest animal on that evolutionary tree, we fail to understand how significant that lie really is. That lie has enabled man to do unspeakable things to other men. It has led us into a direction that is, produces complete ignorance of man's unique value and purpose. It's not something to be taken lightly. Beginning in the mid-1960s, the church began to understand 
that God gives to man a spiritual component, a component referred to as the spirit in man. Mr. Armstrong wrote extensively about that in his books, The Incredible Human Potential and Mystery of the Ages. We've given sermons on the subject, and we have literature on the Life, Hope, and Truth website that shows this, so I really don't want to take the time to reprove that today. But it was a very important bit of knowledge, not something to be taken lightly. Now, when Mr. Armstrong began to explain this spirit in man, there were some who said, well, you're just teaching the immortal soul. And he clearly explained, no, that's not true. The spirit in man is entirely different from the idea of an immortal soul. Those who believe in an immortal soul believe that the soul is always conscious and is therefore able to communicate with other souls and to experience pleasure or pain. In contrast, the spirit in man is a spirit component that enables thought and choice that makes the difference between animal brain and human mind. But the spirit in man has no consciousness apart from the body. It is the record of all that goes into making us the people we are. Our memories, our personalities, our character. Now we've used various analogies to help understand that. Consider for a moment the function of a memory card in a modern computer or phone or camera. It stores all kinds of information. It can be music, photos, text, code, any number of things. But it's only useful when it is installed in the appropriate device. On its own, it's just so much plastic and metal. It cannot convey any information apart from the electronic device. If you record something on one of these cards, you can put it into a second device and you can draw the material out, but just by itself, you can't draw anything from it at all. In a similar way, the spirit in man is a record of all that makes you, you, and me, me. As long as we're physically alive, we can access our memories, our personality, our emotions, our character, all of those things. But when our physical life ends, that information is no longer accessible to anybody. And that's exactly what God intended. We're told in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, that when we die, our physical body returns to dust. But the spirit returns to God who gave it. In a sense, we could say that when our physical body wears out, God takes the storage unit and he puts it in a safe place until the time when he gives us a new body. At that point, he reinstalls that spirit component, and we exist again, only this time with a body composed of spirit that will never die. Now, over the last few weeks, I've been revising my class notes for FI, and I've been going over material written by some very, very intelligent biblical scholars, but they are hopelessly entangled with the belief in the immortal soul. And even though the scripture is very clear, they keep going back and trying to say, well, it doesn't exactly mean that, it means this. Trying to find ways to explain an immortal soul doesn't exist. 
I have read through pages and pages of text trying to prove that we are conscious after death in spite of what the scripture says. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them, or it can be translated, their memory is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. A few verses later on, a memory verse, chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. Now, interestingly, in the mid-1960s, there was an individual named Kenneth Taylor who began producing a paraphrase of the Bible, which was titled The Living Bible. The paraphrase, which was based upon the Revised Standard Version, became very popular for some people. In the 1968 paraphrase of the book of Ecclesiastes, where we've just been reading from, he felt the need to add a footnote to these verses. Here's what he wrote. These statements are Solomon's discouraged opinion and do not reflect the knowledge of God's truth on these points. Once you're determined to believe something and it's so clearly wrong, well, you've got to come up with some kind of an excuse. And this was his. Keep this in mind as we address the question of what is Hades. In short, Hades is the place where the dead are. If you accept Satan's lie, then you conclude that they are conscious. If you accept God's revealed truth, the dead are still in Hades, but they have no consciousness. Now we'll think about what that means as we go a little further. It would certainly take far more time than we have today to consider all the different ideas about Hades and the afterlife that exist in our present world in the various religious traditions. Some see continuing existence in some other condition, while others kind of believe that after a certain amount of time, maybe you get to come back and do it differently. Um, they believe that people are reincarnated in some form. Now, I think most of us would immediately say, well, yes, those are basically the Asian uh, religions and so on that believe that. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life in a 2009 survey, 25% of Americans believe in reincarnation, and 24% of American Christians believe in some form of reincarnation. Apparently, they don't read their Bibles real closely. Though most professing Christians apparently don't recognize that the basic beliefs in most Christian churches have their origins at least as far back as the world of ancient Greece. In traditional Greek belief, the immortal soul left the body at the moment of death. It was then escorted to the ferry, not Tinkerbell, F-E-R-R-Y, the ferry across the river Styx to the underworld. After crossing the river, three judges would determine where you would spend eternity. There were three possibilities, all of which were included in the realm of the god 
Hades, also known as Pluto. The first was the Elysian Fields. Now, the Elysian Fields were a wonderful place where everything was joyful. And the only people who got to go there were those who were both heroic and prominent. Most people, no. The second possibility was Tartarus. This was a very bad place for those who were evil, and they would be tortured for eternity. But the Greeks had a third place, the plains or fields of Asphodel. This is actually where most people ended ended up. It was a gloomy place underground, dark, damp. It had fields full of gray plants that produced gray flowers with no smell. Um, Those who died and were going to spend their eternity in the plains of Asphodel, on their way stopped by the river Letha and drank the water which caused them to lose their identities, their memories. All of that was erased. The only consciousness they had was the present. So this was better than suffering forever, but it certainly wasn't a great place to look forward to. Now, those first two places, the Elysian Fields and Tartarus, may sound a lot like the traditional idea that you either go to heaven or to hell when you die. If you have studied Roman Catholicism, you may recognize that the plains of Asphodel are very similar to the Roman Catholic teaching about heaven, hell, and purgatory. Now, we sometimes, I think, shake our, hand, our heads at uh, Roman Catholic belief, but quite honestly, in this case, the Roman Catholics are a little more honest than the Protestants have been. Basically, they've looked at the situation and they said, well, there aren't many people who are good enough to go to heaven, but there are a lot of people who really don't deserve to suffer forever, so we need to have another place. And though the scripture doesn't say anything about it, they came up with the idea of purgatory. And the idea of purgatory is that people who are not so bad they need to suffer forever can go there for a period of time and suffer somewhat uh, and in the process uh, pay for the, uh, the sins that they committed and ultimately you can get into heaven. No one knows exactly how long you have to stay in purgatory. Um, but if you are a good Roman Catholic, uh, one of the things that you can do is purchase indulgences. Now, that purchase for you, they're purchased for others, your relatives, your friends who have gone on before you. And uh, you might purchase a mass, for example, that would be recited or, or given for a particular person, and it reduces their time in purgatory. So uh, you hope, uh, be sure you have good friends left behind so that they can do this for you. Uh, it made me think of a lady a number of years ago who told us that uh, she grew up in, she's Hispanic, she grew up in the Roman Catholic world, and she said in the church where they were that um, the, uh, uh, when you died, um, the casket was placed closer to the altar at the front depending upon how much you had contributed to the church in your lifetime. She said when her father died, they had the casket in the lobby. <laughs> so uh, thankfully we don't do it quite that way. So, Roman Catholics at least teach this, and I'm perhaps oversimplifying part of it, but I think the basic concept is accurate. So, what does the Bible teach about Hades? 
keep in mind that it was and is common today and in the past to appropriate words that were commonly used in the word around, world around us and apply them in different ways. They convey a different meaning when we bring them in. Apostle was a word that was used in government for individuals who were sent as official emissaries. Deacon is a word that simply means servant. Pastor is a word that means shepherd. Baptize referred to plunging a cup into a bucket of water or sinking a ship. But when those words are brought over into the church, they acquire a different meaning. The same is true for the word Hades. The pagan ideas were certainly incorrect, but Hades, the place where all the dead people are, is real. So how do we understand it correctly? Let me draw an analogy I think that at least helps me to understand. Hades can be thought of as a giant warehouse where God stores the spirit in man for all people. It is a part of the spirit dimension. It is not in some physical location because it doesn't store anything physical. I think of it as having three rooms where the spirits of the dead are preserved until the time of the resurrection. Just inside the entrance, there is a small room. This room holds the spirits of those who have been called in this age, again, think of the SD card that we were looking at, who will be resurrected and given new life at Christ's return. Once that room is emptied at Christ's return, nobody else is put in there. That's an empty room from there on. Next to it, there is a great room. And that room preserves the spirits of all of those who have never yet had their opportunity for salvation. And they are awaiting that opportunity at the second resurrection. And finally, way in the back, is a small room, holding the spiritual remains of those who have had a full opportunity for salvation, but have rejected or neglected it. They're awaiting that third and final resurrection. Jesus promised that everyone in that warehouse, without exception, will be resurrected back to life. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life. Those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation or perhaps judgment. Isaiah was anciently inspired to prophesy the same thing. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. The Apostle Paul was inspired as well to clarify that this is going to happen exactly according to God's ancient plan. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ that is coming. As Christians, we derive a great deal of comfort from this truth. We know our loved ones who die, whether they've been called in this life or not, will be brought back to life, and we will be with them again. 
They're not suffering. They're not grieving. They're unaware of the passage of time, and they have not ceased to exist. When we go forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and we tie in with that, Ezekiel chapter 37, the dry bones chapter, we see the description of that second resurrection, which leads to what we've called the great white throne judgment period in Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12. Moving on to verse 13, we see the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Scripture shows us that whatever is cast into the lake of fire is completely destroyed forever. At this point, in what the book of Revelation is describing, every human being who has ever lived has had a full opportunity for salvation. So there will be no more humans left to die. Death is cast into the lake of fire and ceases to exist. No one will ever die again. Hades, our giant warehouse, is now empty, and it's unneeded. So it is also destroyed in the lake of fire. Now, hold your place there if you're looking in the book of Revelation, because we'll come right back. But I'd like to tie in another verse which sometimes confuses people, and I think it's helpful to see it in this light. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus Christ said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. We've understood this to be the the basic life principle that God gives to us, that's built into an individual. No one can take that away, but rather fear him who is able to destroy, and the word means completely destroy, both soul and body in hell. term here is Gehenna, another term that describes the lake of fire. God tells us here that not only is the body completely destroyed, all potential for life is completely gone. There'll never be a resurrection for those who are in that second death. Now, having said that, again, remembering the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. As you move forward from the end of chapter 20 and what we've just been reading in Revelation, into chapter 21, we see the new heavens, the new earth coming down. And I want to pick it up in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. In verse 4, he says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, look at this, I make all things new. And he said to me, write. For these words are true and faithful. I always try to include, if I'm giving a funeral, to give that last verse. These things are true and faithful. God has confirmed this. So what is it telling us here? All the human beings who have ever lived or ever will have had their full opportunity for salvation. And then we see the description of them going into the lake of fire and being destroyed forever. And then it talks about tears. 
Will there be tears shed for those who end up as that being their final fate? Yeah, I think there will be. I'm certainly going to be sad to see that take place. Now, it's not a matter of anybody disagreeing with Jesus Christ's judgment. It's just simply great sadness to realize this is where life has ended, and it will not go on again. We see here that God says it is those tears that God himself will dry up. You realize those may be the last tears shed by anyone, anywhere, forever. With that understanding of what Scripture says about Hades, what are the gates of Hades? The Greeks believed that there were certain places on earth where the gods entered and exited Hades. One of the beliefs was that the gods and goddesses of fertility spent the winter in Hades, and they had to be lured out in the spring so that they could bless the crops with fertility. And that was done with various sacrifices and offerings, along with many very sexualized rituals. One of those gates was in a cave located at Caesarea Philippi. From the 3rd century B.C. onward, the fertility god worshipped in this area was Pan, and therefore the area was known as Panias. Pan was a god who was half man, half goat, and often pictured with hooves and horns. Sometimes he's pictured as a benign shepherd playing his reed flute, but in other depictions we learn a lot more. I'm not going to try to show you the artist's renderings of Pan, because many of them are obscene. It is helpful to keep in mind that Satan is often pictured as part man, part goat, with horns. It's also interesting that in Greek mythology, at least for some, Pan was originally the greatest of the gods who was forced from his office by Zeus, which sounds interestingly like a section of scripture. He was also the God who inspired fear, and it is from him that we get the word panic. When you approach the area, you see a large mountain with a prominent cave in the face of it. The cave today is shallow, but that's because much of it collapsed in an earthquake in 1837. Prior to that, it was a large cave with a deep pool of water as the Banyas River ran out of the cave opening. After the earthquake, the flow of the river was reduced, but it still gives 67 million cubic meters of water annually to the northern portion of the Jordan River. Now, we're Americans. We have no idea what a cubic meter is. So let me give you kind of at least an idea. An Olympic-sized swimming pool is 25 meters by 50 meters by 2 meters deep. And it contains about 2,500 cubic meters of water. So this spring could basically fill three Olympic-sized pools every hour. Every 20 minutes, it fills a complete pool, even with its reduced flow as it is today. By Jesus' day, this beautiful area 
was probably the most evil place in all the provinces of Judea and Syria. In the first century, there were several temples in the area in front of the cave. And this was a place where pagans came from all over the Mediterranean world to worship and participate in the perverted practices. In 67 AD, during the first Jewish-Roman War, Vespasian refreshed his army for 20 days at Caesarea Philippi before moving on to attack Tiberius. Most of you will be wise enough to recognize that combat soldiers refreshing themselves are not looking for a nice library and a place to buy smoothies. This offered everything that those soldiers would have wanted. In many ancient temples, at the back of the temple, there was an especially sacred place where the idol of the god was placed. In the main temple at Banyas, the back of the temple opened into the cave, and sacrifices to Pan were made there. Beside this temple were other structures for pagan rituals, including one, which you will see on the right, dedicated to the dancing goats. Dr. Levy noted the possible connections with a warning that God gave in Leviticus. Leviticus 17, verse 7. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they've played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Now, unfortunately, the New King James Version fails to get the full sense of the Hebrew, but the English Standard Version captures it correctly. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. The worship in this site involved unspeakable acts committed openly on the platform so offensive that good Jews would never even come to this place. When Jesus brought his disciples here, probably never been here before, yet he led them to the place where Satan himself was worshipped. With that, let's open up the Bible and turn back to Matthew chapter 16 and read what is said here. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And in verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, the Greek word is petros, it means stone, boulder, small stone, and On this rock, Petra, massive stone, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What is the rock? What is the rock upon which he will build his church? We can legitimately say that Jesus himself is that rock, but Peter was inspired 
to use two terms that describe what makes Jesus the rock. He used the terms Christ and Son of the living God. The Greek term Christos and the Hebrew term Mashiach or Messiah both basically mean the anointed one, the one chosen to reign and to rule, specifically from the line of David, who will be a liberator and a savior. Consider the meaning of son of the living God as well. Jesus is not the son of God in quite the same way you or I might be sons or have a son. He was not conceived and brought into existence to become a son. He is co-eternal with the Father. The Father placed him into the role of firstborn son in the family of God. Now, often in Scripture, the phrase son of means the individual is characterized by a certain trait. Barnabas is called the son of encouragement because he was an encourager. The prophets are sometimes called sons of the prophets because they had that same spirit of prophecy. In Ephesians, those who disobey God are called the sons of disobedience because that is their characteristic. As the son of the living God, Jesus is described as the perfect representation of the Father. He perfectly shows us what God the Father is like, how he thinks, how he acts, and how he expects his children to act. Knowing that he is the one and only path to salvation and that he is the perfect representation of what God expects of us gives the church a rock-solid foundation no matter what other challenges we might face. So by bringing his disciples to this place, where Satan himself was worshipped, Jesus told his followers, no matter what happens in the future, no matter how much Satan deceives and destroys this world, and he will be allowed to destroy a great deal of it, there is one and only one place where you can be safe in the church that I myself will build. So now for our final question. What does all this mean for me? When I started attending the Church of God, there was a lot of talk about the place of safety. Scripture is clear that as the world approaches the darkest days in human history, God will provide a physical place where his people can be protected. But across the centuries and up to our own day, the people of God always need a place where they can be safe, protected from the God of this world and his many deceptions. Jesus Christ told his disciples and us that for us there is one and only one safe place, the church he promised to build. We're not called to be independent Christians loosely connected in some way to a church organization. We are called to be dedicated and contributing members of the church Jesus promised to build. Our relationship to the church must not be casual, sporadic, minimal, or unconsidered. We must be serious about our calling. Personal prayer, 
Bible study, the other disciplines of Christianity, must be a deeply ingrained part of our lives. With all the concerns and distractions and pressures we face day after day, some of us, and I include myself as well, can ill afford to let this calling be anything less than the central core value of our lives. In 2 Peter 1, verse 10 and 11, Peter said, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's probably a lot more to this picture than I've been able to explain today. But as we consider the parts we can understand, it's important to examine our own commitment. It's been suggested that just as Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Each of us has to personally answer that same question in our own lives. While the church should, and I believe does, say the right thing, you and I are held accountable not for what the church says, but what we personally believe and what we do with that belief. So as we said at the beginning, this passage is both sobering and encouraging. We're sobered by our own mortality and the realization that we don't have the power to protect ourselves adequately against the spiritual forces that are rampant in today's world. But at the same time, we're encouraged. Encouraged to know that Jesus himself, the living head of the church of God, has promised us the protection and help we need. And in the last book for our Bible, he inspired John to give us one more reminder of his role and ultimate power. It's in Revelation 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, look at this, I am alive forever, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death.